This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. So this is a panel about parenting and faith, and I recognize that not everybody here has kids or even wants to have kids, uh, that these questions in their strict sense are not going to universally apply to everybody in the room. But I also think that the questions around raising families in or in some way religious, spiritually, it gets to the core of like what we think really something like Christianity has to offer. If we don't care about it passing down between generations, then we probably don't think that that stuff is all that valuable. So I hope for those of you for whom the, the, the sort of children question is not quite as present, that you'll still find some meaning in, in sort of the broader topics. So thank you guys all for being here. Uh, this is the most common theme on which I get listener questions is around... Parenting, and I get that because once you're a parent, like 
These questions feel very pressing uh, in a way that they are abstract before that. Uh, Myron has mostly grown kids, one high schooler and one college kid. Trip, your what's between elementary and high school, what are the ages of your three kids? Uh, 15, 9, and 5. 15, 9, and 5. Until Monday, Haven goes 6. Okay, <laughs> all right. Um, Sari and I have children that are within two weeks of each other, Lucrecia and Soren, and then Sarah, uh, Rowan's two? Yep, two and a half. Two and a half, okay. So for the three of us, our kids are at the age, like the very beginning of the period where they could plausibly remember any of the sort of religiously themed stuff that we might do with them. So, you know, these are really live questions for us. My, my first question is for anybody to jump in. Do, do any of you have a particular, like, what's next question, sticking with the theme, that you've been asking yourself or discussing with your partner around the topic of raising kids with some kind of Christianity or spirituality? Yeah, I'll jump in, um, because this is actually a current research question for me, is looking at um, the philosophy, science, and theology of parenting for the spiritual but not religious. Okay, but let's just pause for a second and say the fact that it's kind of cool and very you that the question you're asking yourself about Rowan is also like part of a Templeton grant that you're running or whatever. I am not here on Templeton. I'm not here representing the John Templeton Foundation. Okay. I, I am le- now because you said the word Templeton. I am now legally bound to make that make disclaimer. That uh, okay, that's nothing good. I say today or ever She's on any of your podcasts yeah. is in any way to be seen as representative. Of the John Templeton Foundation. Understood. Um, thanks, Dan. Uh, we almost got there. We almost got through another day I without that liability. Liability. Yeah, a little, yeah. Just a little heads up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was oh, when okay. she was yes. talking about drugs. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> now you said the word drugs, and now it's even more complicated. Okay. okay. Um, right. No, yeah. So, I mean, this is the best part of my work at the moment is that I find ways to pour money into things I care about. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so basically I think for a lot of people in this room or in the general, uh, podcast space that all of us are involved in, um, a huge question is how to handle the, uh, how to handle, um, the question of whether or not we should raise our kids or allow our kids to be immersed in religious communities and spiritual traditions if we ourselves are struggling with the content or the communal dynamics or the kind of like the bad parts of those traditions. Um, and I felt like this would be a good moment for me to say publicly on the record that I have changed my mind about this question since the last time that you and I talked about this. Do you Ooh. remember? We had, a question, we had a discussion on one of our episodes about parenting. And you said, you know, even if I don't believe all the stuff, I am committed to uh, immersing Soren in a particular tradition because I think it gives them the foundation to do something interesting with their lives, his life spiritually, even if he doesn't like stick to that particular tradition. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to be able to like lie to my child about this stuff that I think is potentially harmful. So I've totally reversed this, my position on this. (laughs) And I think it's healthy to own our limitations and own I our so love. Now you're lie <laughs> love potentially harmful yeah, yeah. things. Is that what? <laughs> yeah. No. Um, now she's okay with lying. Yeah. Now I'm totally fine with it. Actually, <laughs> if you've ever had a toddler, you understand. Um, yeah. I uh, no. I think that there is something to what you have said many times, Dan, which is that like uh, there's something about allowing your child to be um, immersed in the particularity and the specificity of a particular spiritual community 
and um, participating in ritual in particular and religious practices and habits and experiences and love, the kind of the bonding, the glue that holds religious communities together. I think this is something very important developmentally, cognitively for little developing minds about giving them the tool set to think and feel and experience spiritually and liturgically and religiously because there are developmentally specific windows where certain things, uh, certain, certain ways of being in the world have the most sticking power. And it's really hard to learn a spiritual sensibility if you did not have it in your childhood. Um, so with Rowan, my daughter, I am currently at the point of really wanting to allow her to explore like the richness of the infrastructure of religious tradition and spiritual pathways in a sort of grounded, normative, kind of serious way, and not just sort of like go to yoga and do some meditation once in a while, just kind of like giving her the ability to navigate a religious terrain, regardless of the direction of her theology in the future or whatever religious pathway she finds to be the most truth apt. Um, And so I think that for me, the what next question is like, how do we be honest with ourselves and raise kids in a tradition or no tradition, but sort of like spiritually informed um, in a way that is um, productive and constructive for them while while still creating the space for the sorts of questions that we're all wrestling with, uh, the kind of the truth claims, particularly when the power of the ritual in the community is often experienced as less if the truth claims are not held to, right? So how do we do that? How do we make these rituals powerful if we don't believe the stuff? Um, so that's that's kind of I think what the uh, the developmental question is, and sort of the theological question as well. So you, to, just to summarize, what you're, the question there is like, well, I want her to be exposed to this stuff, but if our family, you know, or whatever, our sort of circle of adults and other people we have and siblings around our kids, if we can't full throatedly go along with all the truth claims, then are we actually giving her a sort of neutered version of the thing we're trying to give her? Or is there a way mm-hmm. to sort of hack that? Yep. And like, can you have, like, like, for instance, growing up thinking that the Eucharist is a metaphor, will that do the same thing for you as if you think it is the literal body and blood of Christ? Like, that's a really good question. Mm-hmm. And it's theoretically, empirically answerable. Exactly. Which is so why let's do some research on it. <laughs> research question. Love that. Yep. Okay, Myron. I think... Um, like processing the question of how you want to raise your kids. Like so much of parenting, uh, the actual operationalizing of parenting that happens is just quick and intuitive and it happens in real time and you're not really thinking about it. It just kind of reflects who you are as a person and you're responding to who your kids are in real time situations and you say things and you make judgments and decisions. Uh, Other aspects of parenting are not like that, hopefully. Uh, They can be the product of more reflective kind of, you know, you sit down, you kind of think about, well, how do we want to raise our children with respect to faith formation and what kind of, you know, and so you can be a little bit more intentional about that. But I think that uh, regardless of whether the parenting that we do is quick and automatic or more reflective and and thoughtful, uh, one thing that's a part of that dynamic is how we were each raised. And when it comes to the type of of, uh, faith experiences we want our kids to have, I think, uh, you know, a big part of that is the decision that we make relative to our own kind of uh, decisions that our parents made, right? And I think that's true in almost every aspect of parenting, whether it's, you know, how, what kind of, like, how you 
put them into sports or how you, you know, present their opportunities to hang out with friends or how you dress. Like, you're either reacting against, you know, what your parents did. You're going to say, fuck that, I'm going to do something different. Or you, 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 you kind of pick out a different path. And I think that, you know, so the, the decision about how to raise your kids in terms of a faith community is just one instance of a, of a larger set of questions relative to how, how you were raised. And so I think, you know, that's, um, that there, <laughs> that's, part of both the tools that we bring with the baggage that we bring to parenting situations. And, and I think uh, those experiences are not too far behind. So that's all I got to say about that. I want to just briefly give you five points for talking about dual processing theory without naming it. Good job. Yes, those are some really good public, Do I get public a, scholarship I, there. I, I think I deserve a mug. Hey, <laughs> all right, all right. We all want mugs. They've we all, all been mugs. spoken for, but we might, I think we will have to make them for like a merch store because they're yeah. so yeah. funny. Okay, then we can all get a mug. All right. <laughs> or, you can have a mug and you can get a, a mug. a Patreon member. Yeah. yeah. Come on, Dan. Ongoing giving is better than a one-time purchase. <laughs> That's true. Okay, perhaps we will Marketing do that. Marketing lessons from Trip. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, we're raising Lulu bilingual, and Steve-O was teaching Lulu her shape names in in Spanish. And when she there was a cross and when Stevo said Cruz de Jesus <laughs> instead of just Cruz. Yeah. And now she that's all she says. Anytime she sees anything that's like this, she's like, Cruz de Jesus. And it's the most adorable thing we even even in the uh, what is it? Physics for babies? I don't I'm not gonna say but there's a positively charged <laughs> and she's okay, like, okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, that said, I am grateful for the like cognitive science research that says children are naturally like drawn to spiritual ideas and stuff. And I see that in her life. I see that in my own life and mm-hmm. as like naturally drawn to spiritual concepts and stuff. I'm also grateful that I've come to this new understanding of who I think God is. And I don't feel anxious about whatever happens with her. She's not going to end up in hell. And right. I feel very convinced of that and right. very comfortable with that. I'm very excited that I can raise her and teach her about this inclusive, loving spirit, divine energy in the universe and, mm-hmm. and all the things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I still fear that it's not enough mm-hmm. because of kind of what Sarah was saying, because I remember what I felt like when I was an evangelical. Yeah. I felt yeah. in love with a savior. Love yeah. song for a savior. I was just going to bring up that song. Yeah. Like if yeah. Josh played that right now, I would melt down. We'd all be in tears, yeah. guys. Like, we we instantly take... become 13 again. That's a Jars of Clay song for yeah. Yeah. Jars of Clay, love song for uh, a savior. <laughs> Shout out to but, the 90s, yeah. But like, and I have struggled when, since moving away from that framework of doctrine to feel in love with a savior. Yeah. Hmm. I guess because I, you know, I'm not sure. I don't feel like I need to center my understanding of God starting from a starting place of I'm a sinner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think that's a big part of it. It's like, I know where I am in this story and I am rescued. And there's this like beautiful, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why a lot of people are drawn to Trip Fuller. Yeah, because he's got the poetic language that helps place a progressive theological thinker in a story in a narrative yeah. um, that is that is beautiful. And I think being aesthetically caught up in a story is something that we could work on as progressives. Mm-hmm. Well, and, yeah. and a story that That's actually sure. sounds like good news. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's always helpful. 
So let's work on that. Yeah. <laughs> we can go to you, or I have one thing, a little response to sort of what they've said. Yeah, respond. Okay. I'm, I'm uh, interested. Two of you out of three mentioned tools, and I came up with an image kind of in real time on a recent interview that I don't know which will come out first, but so it'll be there as well. I kind of like it, but I'm also like, is there maybe something lacking? And I want to know what you guys think of it. So, you know, when you get married and you can do a gift registry. So by the time I got married 13 years ago, it was starting to become popular for like the dudes to ask for like power tools and tool sets. This was like becoming acceptable. It's not just plates and saucers and whatever. <laughs> and I came up with this idea, like imagine you're getting married and, and you're sort of presented with two choices. One is, all right, you guys can start from scratch with a wedding registry of brand new tools, but you will have to sort of choose which ones you ask for. You don't have unlimited funds and you're going to start building up your tool chest and your, your garage, whatever. Or alternately, your dad and I are moving out of our house into an apartment and your dad has offered to just let you, you can have the entire garage of his tools. Now he's got the full craftsman, six foot, you know, the drawer is coming out. He's got a full set of tools. Mm -hmm. Some of them need to be repaired. Some of them are probably actually unsafe by current standards. <laughs> and you should figure out which ones those are and throw away, keep them away from your children eventually. But like if I kind of think of the choice as something like akin to that, I can go with a, a sort of universally informed spirituality, seeing what resonates for me and my family, or I can take a garage full of tools. It's not perfect, but the socket wrenches are going to work. A lot of this stuff's going to work. I'm going to have to do some tweaking and discernment. That's sort of how I think of the choice I'm making. Mm -hmm. Is this a good analogy or not? What's wrong with it if it's not good? It kind of took a long time to explain. That's one thing okay. that's wrong with it. Right. That's not good about it. <laughs> what was the middle thing? <laughs> okay, I can't, I'm not competing with Rob Bell. You put all your big questions in a box and that's God. Boom. Five seconds. Okay. Do you play with power tools? Do I play with power I tools? I was distracted from the moment you were like, I remember y'all all remember when it was trendy to add power tools to your registry, and I'm like, no. <laughs> it was. And I was like, is he about to offer a man engagement present? And you're like, I don't have to wear a ring, but she did buy me a new PlayStation. <laughs> what do you think of the analogy? Okay, all right, all right. Okay, okay. Trying to get some honest feedback here. Okay, Jeez. so here's where I think. Okay, so you got it. buying into the very elaborate, intricate analogy. Okay, fair. Um, yeah. I would say what you would need to watch out for to like think yourself through is whether or not you'd be able to fully appreciate and participate in the inherited garage full of tools if you had had a tough relationship with your dad. If you had oh. had bad memories in that garage, oh. if you had wounded yourself on that saw Did before. you just make it a better analogy? That's <laughs> what I am to do. I think because just, the rest I think of the people finally know what yeah. you were talking about. This yeah. is like, why we workshop. Uh-oh. Right. Uh, not intended. Oh, okay. workshop. Or Five. Not, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. It is difficult. It is very difficult to fully appreciate the value of something like an inherited garage full of tools. Yeah if you have a lot of baggage associated with those tools, right? So one of the Great. the brilliant things of getting a bunch of new stuff is that it's you and your partner starting out and starting your own story 
And you are not like immediately laden with decades of difficult, challenging things that will be very front of mind and affectively present every time that you go into that garage. Yeah. So if you have a great relationship or great memories with your dad and the, uh, the tools and the garage, all of that, the whole context, then maybe that's the best choice. But if it's more trouble or pain or hassle than it's worth because your particular history with that person and those things in that place uh, are not good, then maybe the target registry is where you want to go. I like that wrinkle. Can I, can I briefly say, I like also that some of the tools that your dad used we're really going deep here. Some of the tools <laughs> your dad used, you don't need to use them. Like they've yeah. become obsolete. But some of them, you're going to have to replace them. You will have to figure out your own socket wrench set. Like socket wrenches are too valuable. You're mm-hmm. going to need them. No one's going to sort of disrupt the socket wrench industry. Right. So there is a little bit of like, okay, I'm, we're... Or it's kind of also like if your mom left you like a makeup kit. Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Siri and I are going to like... This was what? your grandma's engagement. <laughs> this was your grandma's engagement <laughs> ring. Okay. Why do you need to gender code the power yeah. tools? We're going to be related okay. to the other I don't know. Okay, so, so uh, I mean, it's an interesting analogy in this respect. I mean, tools are used to solve problems, right? So one thing is to say, okay, you know, or you know, maybe your your parents had a particular set of problems that they were trying to solve, and they used a certain set of tools. And so then the question is, you know, are this are you, do you have the same problems that you're trying to solve, and what's the best set of tools that's going to be used to to do that? But I mean, you, you could have gone a, a different way too to say, um, you know, what kind of music did my parents listen to? Right? What what kind of moved them aesthetically? Uh, and mm. you know, are are uh, is that something that I can draw on? Like, would you want your parents, you know, vinyl collection, the record like collection, that, yeah. you know, or uh, is that going to move you in the same in in the same ways? And and that kind of changes the, the the focus of it a little bit because the the, the tool kind of analogy is like, oh, we're all facing certain problems, we need to figure shit out. Whereas mm-hmm. on the aesthetic side of things, it's like, oh, there's there's a, a wider world of of you aesthetic know encounter. I love this, Myron. I oh, love yeah, this. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should have me on your podcast. <laughs> Um, about that first question you asked, yeah, the what's next thing, um, Sari's response, uh, this came to mind, is what's next for a whole lot of families that have kids, love them, and would love for them to know they are known completely and loved is that they are in families who have different experiences. They don't have a shared meta narrative um, of religious vision. Uh, and the the different kind of baggage and trauma people bring or blessings and curses vary. So even though Alicia and I are both Baptists from the South, I have a large amount of love for what was gifted to me. And she's the polar opposite. And so the very same spaces we could go in, she could say yes, as now that we were both ordained Baptist ministers, but now that neither one of us work at a church, visiting churches in the last year and going, there's been multiple times she leaves a worship service the same time I say amen. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Right? And it's not even the content because of the churches we've gone to, you know, you, you pre-vet theologically. Yeah. It is simply the form or the tools or like the image that you are using. Mm. Or you're like, is it enough? We want to say something specific. Our conversations are different than my parents and her parents, even though they're very different expressions of Christianity. Because we're sitting there going, and for me, I'm like, I want to hand off an experience where when they wake up in the morning, they say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And that's natural for me. And for her, if she hears me sing that song, she says, Trip, shut the fuck up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you say Lord like that with a smirk on your face, it reminds me of patriarchal fundamentals, blah, yeah, blah, blah. Right. And I'm just like, no, no, no. It's cultivating a hermeneutic of gratitude with the very <laughs> gift of life. You know? And, and, of course, and she yeah. says How's to that me, go marriage wise. Uh, well, look, I, I said more of my response here than I do when I tell it to her. But. But here's why I think, like, recognizing the what's next is things that complicated, because even though that's true, the same tool room feels different even for siblings of the same family. Yeah. A lot of us that have this deep encounter with the divine have the question Sari had, is that enough? And then they have the question you raise, like, what happens if we don't really believe these things and that? Right, like maybe you should talk about epistemology with Myron for a bit so that we know that like believing those things is really unrelated to true false tests. But the <laughs> the other thing I would say is there is a there is a wisdom in historic Christianity that modernity didn't have that habits make hermeneutics. And so you can give a habit of gratitude, a habit of affirmation, a habit of choosing challenges all in the church year where you go, I don't know if this is true, but it should be, right? And then what does that look like? And your habits, just like you could have for your own physical well-being and all that other kind of stuff, can be the ones you choose as a family. Um, Like all four of you, Tom and Tony, all of your families, have a specific day I pray for you and your kids and your partners every week. And when you name things, it goes in Tripp's prayer journal. Mm-hmm. So y'all are Tuesdays. Tom is Wednesday. Tony is Thursday. Oh and so when Tony mentioned something about Aiden yesterday, That's it goes in. It and when I day. finally met Tom's daughter, it's there. Now, does the fact that I do that mean I'm like compelling them for anything? No. But I want to have habits that are connected to the values I want to have. Yeah. And then invite the kids into it. What does that look like? When you three had newbies, I mailed y'all this very same book. Mm, it's this yeah. really cute translation of Psalms it's amazing. Uh, by liberal yeah. Lutherans. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and there's like, it's a third of the Psalms. And the pictures and colors, and there's this little bitty uh, worm yeah. whose facial expression tells you what the f- experience of the Psalms are there. I sent to all of you. Yeah. And every night with uh, my little kids... We do the Bible story. I ask questions that help them learn to ask challenging questions to text. Then they all pick a psalm from it that has their feelings. Mm. And then what do I remind them? The gift of the tradition is that every feeling we have, whether it's, God, where are you? I don't want to wake up screaming tonight. Uh, dolphins are really cool and you made that and I love you. Yeah. To, you know, whatever. Like we have been given a tradition where whatever we felt that day, it can come before God. I do that and read the Bible and then leave the room. And Alicia, who has 
way more baggage says thank you for doing that with them. I couldn't. Yeah. And that came out of a lot of us having that. Who has a different feel when you go into your parents' tool chest? Yeah. We want to give them something else, but one of us crosses a finger more than the other mm-hmm. and all that. And so just admitting that it's complicated is a great idea. But then going like, what are the habits we're going to do? Because what gets repeated is what they're going to inherit the most. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Trip, every time I hear you talk about parenting, I'm both like humbled and in awe and a little bit shamed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Not because of anything that you're you're projecting, but uh, you present kind of uh, a vision of uh, an, an ecclesial community and a faith tradition and a household uh, inhabited space uh, that is so loving and inclusive and theologically integrated and uh, developmentally appropriate that uh, you 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 seem to have just a, a set of skills that um, are 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 few and far in between. So uh, you know, props to you, but cute. <laughs> I really feel like that's the first time Myron has said "fuck you" to any of us. I, oh, it's not the first time. No, I, I tell that to Dan on a regular basis. Yeah. I want to. First of all, we've gotten a lot of mileage out of a supposedly too convoluted analogy. <laughs> so I think the record speaks for itself. I want to switch gears here. Um, Sarah, you actually kind of already hinted at this earlier in your, in your answer. I love thinking about this distinction of two ways of, of basic, basic assumptions about our young children before God. So I think probably most of us in this room... Little sinners. Little sinners, yes. Most of us in this room were were raised in a community that said, your children, though adorable and though uh, very fun to participate in the church pageant, actually are despicable before God until they realize they're sinful and freely accept the atoning blood of Jesus to make them acceptable before God. That's the foundational assumption. There is an alternate foundational assumption that comes from, you know, more progressive religion, but also really interesting research, um, some of which, you know, Sarah, your your boss, Justin Barrett, uh, has done, and a lot of psychologists and, and other developmental folks that you've interviewed um, in various projects. There's another assumption that says, Children are born with the architecture, the the hardware, the whatever they need right away to engage in spirituality, to relate to God here and now. And if that's true, then we don't have to go through this, you know, we went from black to white, you know, which has its own sort of baggage, right? And we can sort of encourage this, these qualities, these capacities that they are born with. Um, I, I just love that distinction. I, I wonder, I, I'm open to anything, but start with Sari, just because I know you've done a lot of sort of thinking and talking around this issue. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mentioned that. Like, I, I know that, I know that she, that children are open to spiritual ideas and, you know, the other, I mean, but you never know when they're going to ask you like a specific question. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> like she did. She said, oh, where's God? And I was like, uh, well, you can't see God, you know. <laughs> I maybe would have gone to like something panentheistic if I had been more prepared. <laughs> but, but then he was like, I was like, and, uh, but you can't see him. She's like, oh, okay. Like, it was like, no big deal. Like, oh, I get it. Like, she, invisible, yeah. whatever. 
But um, okay. one time Soren asked me, are we with God right now? <laughs> cool. I was like, yeah, yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What are we? What are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about yeah. the. We're talking about like. The, I think oh, that yeah. those two assumptions yeah, yeah, yeah. lead to very different parenting approaches. Yes. Very different children's oh, yeah. ministry approaches. You know all that stuff. Yeah, all the psychology I've been exposed to. It's like, how could I even think of this as sin? Much less a damnable sin. You yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> Given, but you know, people they, they reference. You know, I'm sure Soren's done stuff like this where you're like, I don't know, they're jumping on something dangerous. They're like, you're like. Don't jump on the couch, and they look you right in the eye, and they're like gonna jump harder, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like yeah. they do stuff like that all the time, right? But even still, it's like cute, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's perfectly in line with their development with testing right. boundaries and like, which is a healthy thing, you know? So I don't, I can't even think of it that way anymore. And I know that, like, so I just know that the conditions for any change or growth that needs to happen in her life will happen when she feels fully loved mm-hmm. and safe and supported and all those things. And so she's going to know that her parents love her. She's going to know that God loves her. And I know that if that's communicated in, in actions, in communities, in rituals, that I will set her up to, to grow in the way that she's supposed to. And mm-hmm. there's no need to like you know, I don't know, maybe that will lead to another problem where it's like, oh, she, I don't communicate the, a sense of personal accountability or something, but I think that's like the worst that could happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I won't linger on it, but there's an obvious correlation here with therapy and that almost every form of therapy with the exception basically of like old school Freudian stuff is that a major component, a necessary component for most people to change is unconditional positive regard. Mm-hmm. That they are in your office, and when they're in your office, they are not worried that you're going to love them conditionally. They are just going to be listened to. And, like, the amount of, like, the, the research is, it's literally the most well-founded research finding in psychology, <laughs> in clinical psychology, is, like, yeah. that you need to do that, and then people's defenses can come down. They can try out yeah. ideas they haven't tried out, That's not just a kid thing that's... For all all relationships, right? Yeah, it's not just kids, right? Yeah, Yeah. it seems to be just a kind of a truth of human interaction. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually found that now that I have a toddler, I struggle more with having grace for the way my parents indoctrinated me. Interesting. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, we're millennials. uh, Well, we're millennials. (laughs) Um, Elder. And Ger- geriatric. Uh, geriatric yeah, millennials. millennials. Yeah. Um, charming. And <laughs> I mean, maybe, I, some days I feel like a geriatric millennial, I'll be honest. Yeah. Perhaps okay. it comes more easily to our generation. We are very psychologically informed. Um, there's a different culture on parenting now than in the 80s yeah. and 90s. I understand all of that. Dr. Becky. Have you heard of Dr. Becky? Mm-mm. No. Yeah, okay. you know. <laughs> She's great. Um I think, if anything, I've been so just, like, utterly surprised at how easily it comes for me to love and accept and understand Rowan. I have a two-year-old with extremely big emotions. She feels everything extremely intensely. How did that happen? I I know. I can't imagine. I can't imagine how my child would feel the world extremely intensely. Um, Yes, we're Scottish. Yeah. And in that, you know, in that manifests in all the predictable ways. And she does things constantly that frustrate me, but there's never been a single second where I've been like, yeah, this is a being 
that deserves eternal conscious torment in hell. Um, And it's just like so obvious to me that there are like she's a developing creature. She is she is trying to explore the world as an independent being, but not totally independent. Like it's just like developmental psychology is a thing. Like there, Mm -hmm. it just is a thing, and it's so obvious to me. Mm -hmm. And I think the obviousness of it to me like how lovable and good and funny and creative and beautiful she is. Like, it's just so self-evident to me um, that it has, and then like the sort of like, you know, zooming out a bit, it's like, not only are those things evident to me, but it is evident that any God worth calling God could never allow a being like her to be eternally tormented mm-hmm. consciously in hell. God's like, God's like, are you having some big feelings today, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> No, but it's just like so, I mean, it's just so obvious to me. And it's actually, it's actually, I, I mean, I felt like I did a lot of work before I had my daughter, like going, like dealing with my, the way I, dealing with the way my parents raised me in a Southern Baptist church. Right. Yeah. And when I had her, it brought a lot of things up again for me. Cause I'm like, what the actual, like, how could yes. you guys tell me week in and week out that like, yes, you are a sinner who is utterly depraved and is worthy of burning alive in a pit of fire for all of eternity separated from God and all good things, unless you pray this particular prayer. And it's just like a, it's a very, um, I just can't think myself into that space. I was talking to Trip over lunch about this actually, and how somebody posted online some like paragraph from a David Bentley Hart book that was actually very gracious and compassionate. And it's basically saying like, listen, there were needs that there are needs that people are filling by affirming something like eternal yeah. damnation, right? Yeah. Like it's a like that is an integral part of the most meaning making communities that those people have, and they are um, they there are reasons they have needed to believe those things. Those reasons have nothing to do with their, like their love for you, but it is there are reasons that people believe these things, and we can recognize the social and communal role that those sorts of very destructive, intense concepts have played. Mm-hmm. Um, just like recognize that it, like it played a role, we can let it go. But I, I have actually really struggled with that. Like, how could my parents, like, how could one sec, for one second, have my parents have thought that I could have burned alive in hell for all eternity and then, like, them have communicated that to me week in and week out? It's like, that's a hard thing to get over. But, but I think the short answer is that, I mean, you kind of answered your own question is, like, the reason they could say it is because they believed it. But right? did they? Well, like, that's horrifying well, to me. Well, did they actually truly believe it? I think that's, a, has anyone done that study? Like, do people actually truly believe in hell or are they... Well, they were their inner, their children, yeah. the inner child believes it. You know, yeah. like they were taught that by. Well, I mean, so that's, the only, I. that's the only good reason. So I was I, but of. not for one second have yeah. I ever even been tempted. Or there's never been. It's just never been yeah. a possibility for you me. Yeah. No, I get what you're saying because that is what that was like. My last step into yeah. being fully convinced of universalism was looking at my child and being like, I can never fathom. And, yeah. and you know, God loves her at least as much as I do. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, you don't have the plausibility structures that your parents had, you know, like that's kind of a boring way to answer it, but like they are surrounded by people who believed it. And in the context of that community of people, they had basically their peak experiences uh, around ultimate questions and, and they had their tightest social group probably, which brought them all kinds of very helpful, you know, things in their life. And this group of people believes that. And so we believe it. I also think there's, 
I think that the age of accountability uh, <laughs> loophole is really telling. I mean, you know, people say like, like atheists will say if God didn't exist, humans would, would have invented him. If the age of accountability loophole didn't exist, like people would invent it because you, and by the way, this means like in, in these communities, you go, well, you have to get to a certain age before you can really sin. So anybody who dies before then, they actually go to heaven. Now this creates... We didn't have that though. You didn't have that in yours? No. The age of accountability in your tradition was like one day. (laughs) Oh no, I remember because it was super Calvinist, and I remember someone asking about like infants that die. Do they go to hell? And and they said like my pastor said, elect infants do, and that children of the elect were more likely to be elect, but. (laughs) Children of the elect were more likely to be elect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. What is that? I mean, how is that? It, it gets passed Don't down sort of messenger. like mood disorders. <laughs> if your mom's bipolar, you're more likely to be bipolar. And if your mom's elect and you die as an infant, you're more likely to be elect. It makes perfect hey. sense, people. Hey, hey Dan, wow. on, the, uh, on the question of anthropology and atonement and how it shapes parenting, um, Houston Gonzalez, in his kind of history of Christian thought, talks oh, yeah. about from the very beginning of the early church, there, there's an agreement that it worked, right? Like if you read the creed, there's no atonement theory. It's just like, yeah, sin and death are conquered. Jesus Yippee. did something. Yeah, yeah. And then we're yeah. like, but how? <laughs> and why? And, and then the who? argument unfolded, yeah, yeah. and uh, we haven't caught back up to that one. That's for Vatican III. Yeah, uh, right, exactly. But the... The, but it is interesting when he develops how, like, in the early church, there was kind of three large answers. One, like, primarily saw the work of Christ in a judicial context, right? So then to be faithful to a God where the event that worked that reconciles things is primarily judicial, what does it mean for you to be a godly parent, right? There's that. Right, And then you get to the one that is primarily about affirming the source, which leads to authority and the divine right of kings and all that kind of stuff. What then is the primary thing about, uh, about respect of authority and obedience and this kind of thing? Then you go down to like Alexandria and the origin of the Cappadocians, and salvation is primarily pedagogical. It's about cultivating uh, someone that inherits the patterns of both good and ill, and then how do you uh, pedagogically evolve, right, uh, spiritually and such. And it leads to different parenting styles. So the, when, like when you think about the kind of questions you're asking while deconstructing and such, and then they're like, oh, WTF, why does this matter? Why does this care? And blah, 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 blah. Like one, like kind of like how you imagine God at work in the world has a real big impact on how you relate to your parents. The other thing I would say, which is like my big fear about this, is that when you opt out of thinking about a big story where the source of reality is invested in each moment and the possibilities is we already know what lens people are going to use to assess themselves and their neighbor. 
And it is primarily algorithms monetized to describe you as deficient and then exercise out of you all the agency they can and attention to be monetized for a market that is killing the planet and the poor. So like the best reason for figuring out a way of articulating a vision for the whole other than the one they're going to be indoctrinated in. If you think penal substitutionary atonement is bad, just wait until TikTok tells them who they are. Right? And, and there's like actual statistical significance. If you think of just uh, pre-pubescent people into pubescent, like the moment they touch an algorithm that wants your attention for financial means, it f***s you up and makes you hate yourself. If you thought you were bad as a reprobate, just wait till capitalism tells you how deficient you are. And it will not just occupy your afterlife, it will occupy your actual gifts and abilities so that you feel deficient and work yourself to death and then alienate yourself, right? You said millennials, oh, we move all this time, we don't have real friends. Well, who told you to? It wasn't Jesus. No. No, so anyway, so like I think like one of the best things you can do. Sometimes it takes a religion to be a heretic to the real global religion, economism. And that is my Bernie bro rant for the day. I love it. I won't do a second. It'll trigger Tony, and then you'll edit it out. I think think you've got a couple more coming at the breweries later. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I start drinking more, I'll do it with a higher Christology. So, so basically, the takeaway is that uh, TikTok makes uh, five-point Calvinism look warm and fuzzy. Is that what you're saying? Incredible. Yeah, because there's literally no one that's acceptable, right? So if you look at the interviews with people that are actually influencers and such, they always interpret themselves as deficient, right? Like, that's one of the reasons I get uncomfortable when people, even hanging out with peers with podcasts, talking about, oh, how many downloads do you have? All this kind of stuff, because... Like, what do you do? Like, you're asking for a number that you now interpret yourself as problematic. Yep. But, but why does that matter? Like, the best sermons I've ever heard were in a room with under 100 people. So what if, like, Rob has a billion people listen to his downloaded sermons when he was at Mars Hill? Well, okay, that's great. But, like, the, it's just if we think our metrics are, like, did you get your kid to pray a prayer or did you, like, if the algorithm cultivates this, then what you haven't done is taken the agency you have as a parent and go, what are the habits that you want to matter? How do I do them? Interrupt yourself to do those. That's the greatest gift you can get. And if they pick different ones, they'll choose it consciously. The worst thing I could, like, imagine, like, for my kids is that they think they already understand what it means to be human because I don't. Right, but like if they join you in experiments of it, can we pick habits that we're choosing? Right, like at like during Lent, can we pick out every day something so specific that everyone names something we're grateful for that by the end of Lent we didn't run out of things to say? Because most of our flippant prayers of gratitude are like family, friends, food, help us sleep good. Yes, which I'm good at knowing that because I've done it. But like, could I choose a habit where we force gratitude? Does that change your day? Statistically significant, yes. Yeah. And so sometimes, like, my hesitation on I have to cross my fingers on theology leads me to be crossing my fingers on being a good steward of these humans that are internalizing a regime of meaning, truth, and value that I find deplorable and I don't know how to opt out of. Mm. So, like, what, what are the ways as parents that you go, I can't give you everything, but you will at least know what mattered to me and that if you live well, you will risk something for something valuable. And it could be, and you know, you trust other parents to do it even if you don't agree with them because you're like, well, at least you give a shit. 
And anyway, so sorry. That's fantastic. Thanks, Trip. Well, can I ask how many people have kids here? If you're willing to raise your hand, oh, that's a lot. Okay, okay, good. good. We can get yeah. specific. How many practice making kids here? Oh, Trip. <laughs> okay. No, I was doing the like get the giggle so Dan can reset for whatever's on his agenda. We, so I yeah. got the look where he's Unless like, you Trip, you're preaching. No, I just thought, like, some of the specific stuff is yeah. really interesting, but if there weren't a lot of parents, yeah. then it's not yeah. so interesting. Well, I do want to... Like I a wanna... gratitude practice and all yeah, that kind of no. stuff. Yeah, like how do we communicate our values through actions, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I'm huge, huge cosign on anything related to habit and values-directed habits and practices for yourself, for your family, as a single individual, whatever... Um, I do want to. I want to jump to a few listener questions before we're done. We're going to go five minutes longer than the schedule says. We'll go till five twenty. Um, but I have one kind of palate cleanser question for you guys. Do you have specific songs with your children where you swap out a word or two? So we do "Jesus Loves Me," but it's little ones to him belong. They feel weak, but he is strong. I don't want to say they are weak. Okay. They feel weak. And now when he, if he ever goes and hears the real version, he's going to be like, no, it's they feel weak. You know? Do you guys have any of those where you swap a word out? My kids didn't know that the Lord's Prayer was our father until they were in church. Because of just the historic patriarchy, we always do our mother at home um, so that it evens out over their life. It's like the one place the patriarchy shows up in mainline Protestant churches. Like so if our they mother all the songs, yeah. they're like still our father. Yeah. Mm. So okay, mm-hmm. so you do our mother. Yeah. yeah. We may not sing with our children in the same way that you do, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> no, I no, I do. Rowan is just getting to the age where she's really into songs, and she's she started asking for God dance parties, which means that I put on a Spotify playlist and she dances around to whatever song I choose. I don't change the. I don't. Because we're doing it to like a playlist, I are these Christian songs or yeah. are you just calling a dance party a god? Well, big, for big me, house. I'm a theistic naturalist. It's all God. That's what I'm saying. Um, Do some classical conditioning. So she just thinks a dance party is God. That's great. I love that. Yeah, yeah. No, um, no, I I so like we always we always bring up Phil Clayton. He talks about the adjacent possible. So, I mean, the cool things about kids is that they develop quite, I mean, they develop slowly, like day by day. And so, and each day you can kind of find the thing that feels like acceptable to you. Like it's not too compromising for you who are like a doubting, questioning, agnostic person. And it's also something that is like based in ritual and tradition and everything and can be constructive and meaningful. So like I'll do like, what do you, do you want to thank God for anything today? Like just like very simple things that are my adjacent possible. Yeah. Not a lot of theological claims in there, but, uh, but you know, it's like, it's just, I'm just like, I feel it out with her as she develops. All right. But one of the things is music. And so I'll put on like Spotify playlists and I don't change the specific words cause it's a playlist, but I do select out songs that I don't want her to listen to. So I choose songs like peace, like a river, Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. things that are like, Quaker, Unitarian, Universalist. That's my <laughs> kind of jam. She's is, not there a, is there in existence a version of Peace Like a River that would be appropriate for a dance party? <laughs> no, Rowan's understanding. Here comes the drop. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I bet there is. 
I mean, it was kind of everything, I guess. So, but Sounds I like Cotton Eye Joe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. There used to be this remix of Shine Jesus Shine that I would rock yeah. out to, like oh, yeah. dance party remix. Okay, Shine, okay. Jesus, so Shine. there probably is. Okay, yeah. right. sweet. I think the question, though, like swapping out different things is, uh, I mean, d- developmentally that goes like all through the time you have kids with you, right? Where, y- you know, as... As young, young children, as you're singing, you're going to change the words. But Or if you are in kind of a, a church setting and there are things that are said that are songs that are sung or teachings that are presented or youth group talks that are given that you think, uh, we need to contextualize or you, you kind of... It, those are opportunities to have discussions, right? So you can't necessarily swap out, but you can have, you know, discussions about, well, why, you know, what this pastor so-and-so said is, you know, ha- has issues with it in different ways. And I, I can think of different conversations that we've had in, in our family about that uh, as our kids have kind of grown up. And those can be really good times of, of, of conversation because one of the things, like I texted my teenage children before this panel and said, you know, it's on faith and parenting. Can you give me some perspective and insight on some of the views you have as you think back on how we've parented you in your own faith development? And uh, both uh, uh, girls have said that one of the things that they appreciated was uh, um, an openness to form their own opinions and an ability to interact with uh, uh, any topic that was really on on discussion. And that, um, you know, people who are in faith communities can have a diversity of views. And, and so that's something that they have felt is a good thing. And I think these, you know, swapping out, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, something that they're aware of or not, those are opportunities for that. So mm-hmm. let's go to a couple listener questions. We got 10 minutes. Anybody got anything? I, I know you may have written them down earlier. Now that trips up here, I don't think we have those. So just feel free to repeat that question if you wrote it down earlier. Sorry about that. Tom Ward, what's your question? Let me just repeat the question for the record later. So, Tom, you try to avoid really kind of, you know, damaging biblical stories with your kids. When they would talk about them, you'd sort of kind of break it down a little bit and sort of explain to them how it's not, it's not really, that's not really how we think of it in our family or whatever. And then in the end, you just, they ended up not very biblical, biblically literate and you feel guilty about it. Okay. So I think my first response would be, well, there are many ways that things could go out extremely well. Uh, and here's one way. Uh, they come to have uh, a deeper biblical literacy as adults, and they're able to appreciate the stories for the first time uh, without any of the baggage ahead mm-hmm. of time. And, and so the, the jury, st- I mean, that story is still yet to be written in terms of their own engagement with these, these texts and stories. And perhaps uh, the gift that you've given them by making them functionally biblically illiterate, let's just say. No, but maybe the gift that you've given them is to put a pause on their own, uh, uh, you know, that the time may not have been right for them to appreciate the stories in ways that would be life-giving for them. So that's, that's one thing to say. And uh, the second thing is that, well, you know, are they happy people? Are they flourishing? Are they uh, engaging in meaningful relationships of significance? Are they working towards a, a world of, of, of justice and beauty? Uh, and if that's the case, well, then... Maybe biblical literacy takes a backseat in terms yeah. of priorities of parenting. My question, I, I question back, like, what is, what are you feeling in, in your, like, instinctively is the value of biblical literacy? And then whatever the answer to that is, like, will be helpful. Like, is it, is there something like you think is objectively good about biblical literacy? And, and or is it like, I like the Smashing Pumpkins and I want 
my daughter to be into the Smashing Pumpkins <laughs> too, because it's like my favorite band. Um, but like, I'm not asking you that. Well, you could answer if you want to. But like, that's the kind of question I'm asking myself too with like church. Like, I want her to have mm. a church experience. So there must have been something good and true or, or you know rich about church experience. So like, getting mm. more specific about answers to those questions to see like what actually. Am I drawn to, you know? I think that question, I think Tom's question actually ties into what you said earlier about love song for a savior, kind of like the mm-hmm. like the experience of falling in love with Jesus, like yeah. passionately in yeah. love with God as person, person, like not just like ultimate reality, vague concept of ultimate right. benevolence, but like falling in love with Jesus. Those are the sorts of experiences. I think biblical literacy... Well, I do also remember well. I did like a uh, intense Bible reading yeah. group once where I read the whole Bible in three months oh, with two we other all women. Did that, right? Bible. And it's like I felt like it changed my life. Like yeah. I was I was in love with the Bible too. Yeah, you know? no, I think so I think the way yeah. that you're reframing this question is a good one is like what are we fearing having lost for our kids? Like what like what like as we're sort of like progressive and and it's slightly agnostically kind of like giving them some sort of faith practice or spirituality practice and habit and tradition, but like without the, all the bad stuff switching out songs or words and songs and stuff like what are they losing like or what are we afraid that they won't have access to um and I know that I will never have Rowan in a church like the churches that I grew up in but that probably means that she will never have that like life-changing moment of being able to say like oh in this time and in this place I felt the presence of an all-loving God consume me and I am madly in love with this God right Mm -hmm. Now, I think Tripp might be an exception to this because he talks about his God in the way that I talked about my love for Jesus in the past. I'm not sure how to access that, really, or how to communicate that to my kid, but there is a similar quality to it. But the, the, the specificity and the concreteness of these sort of like life-changing encounters that I'm not sure could usually occur outside of like the context that we kind of came from, I do actually, I kind of grieve in advance, like my daughter not being able to experience those things because I'm so glad I had those experiences, even if I now deconstruct them on the regular. So I feel like um, Tripp would say that, well, the, the value of biblical literacy... If only literacy, there were some way to know. Right. <laughs> like, the, the value of biblical literacy would be that it's a gateway to the theopoetic narrative of a God of, uh, who, who loves you and knows your name. And it allows you to access the tradition and to be able to tell the story of this God. Tom couldn't find any good Bible stories, though. <laughs> you just need to tell it's them in a certain way. I, you know, what's funny is the thing that I am most grateful for from my evangelical upbringing is actually the personal relationship stuff. And even though there was a real lack of clarity around how you are supposed to do that concretely, um, my joke is always personal relationship with Jesus meant read your, read your Bible every night and don't masturbate. Like that was pretty much what it was in in that order or, uh, yeah, yeah. In that order, the Bible was still slightly more important. So if you do it before Um, you read the Bible, it's, you know, you can always ask for forgiveness, but if you didn't get in your reading, you know, uh, But, like, later I found, you know, a lot of Catholic resources and and other sort of, you know, um, even sort of Buddhism-tinged spiritual practices to to go all the way back to our our first session today that that I was like, oh, people have actually worked worked out or worked on, like, how to have a communicative, attentional relationship with God, though God is not physically present. And I was literally just sitting here while you guys were talking, like, 
thanking God for today and like everything that kind of brought us here. And if I talk more about it, I might start crying, Um, which makes me uncomfortably feel like too much like my dad. Uh, So, (laughs) but, but like, you know, so, and, and, you know, Sarah and I, our friendship essentially really got going when we finally had a conversation about our differential experiences around that. And you mentioned divine hiddenness, but that's been a, incredibly personal thing for you. And when you said, you know, maybe trip is like this, I've part of me felt like, no, no, I, I have a relationship with God. I got to talk about this too. Uh, but like we do have real differentials there. And for me, it is the actual thing that, well, I could rework all the doctrine later, but I'm glad that I was encouraged to sort of address God in some way in relational terms. Some yeah. of that's journaling and reading and it's not quite, but it, it did set me up to eventually be able to redeem that phrase, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And now I, I probably don't, I wouldn't call it with Jesus Christ. I'd like hope that Jesus Christ is a part of it, but I think it's God oh or whatever. Gosh. Anyway, I have my, even my way, but, but that attentional turn to God. Yeah. I wanted to say I'm really optimistic about that, like the increased feelings aspect will return even though it's been a while now because Mm. I think that it's like a scientific thing of Mm -hmm. like the neurons in my brain being very very like ingrained from like penal substitutionary atonement so now that I have these new ideas the experiential aspect of it is just slow to develop because Mm -hmm. it's still getting practiced Mm -hmm. I always think about what you said at beer camp actually when you said um, what you pay attention to becomes more real to you. Yeah. That's good neuroscience. <laughs> it is. So I think yeah. about that a lot. Okay. Well, can I say one yeah, thing? Yeah, Tripp, we'll let you... No, no, just yeah. about... about uh, this is me as someone that's a friend of Tom, just to clarify. Hmm. Uh, knowing I, he's probably not the only one with the feeling of what you do with the Bible. Um, part of the problem, I think, with the Bible for those that carry a lot of baggage is that the big story outline that it was imposed on sucks balls, right? Like, God's not as nice as Jesus in it. It's like, things are great. You fucked it up, especially if you're a woman. Uh, You were born. You're still fucking it up. God beat his kid. Do you want to go home for the weekend? Or do you want to go to hell? Like, all the big framework that just you passively internalize sucks so bad that then you read a story in the Bible, and you're like, I'm not telling that to my kid. Right, and so then you're you're like, what do I do? I'll deconstruct it for them. Crazy thing is, kids didn't exist before they were born, and so um, I, there's this sense that you, as a parent, actually are the ones that get to repeat something long enough that they actually remember it. So yeah. that you set the kind of hermeneutical key of when yeah. you read these texts well, what do they mean? Yeah. Uh, there's this passage in uh, Aquinas where he's talking about how to read the Bible literally. And his definition of literal reading of the Bible is reading it as God intended. Right? And that's a direct quote. Uh, and easier, so thought, easier said than done, Thomas. <laughs> but as a Baptist, okay. you know, you're sitting there and you say to yourself, well, if a Catholic, before there were true Christians again, when Baptists <laughs> like, said that to read it literally is how God intended then if you read the, if you grow up with Tom, who's invested in what? God loving you completely, invested in your relationship, and that God could be nothing less than purely loving. When you pick up the text, you know you're going to read it and wrestle with it to either disagree with it or find a way that's true. 
And so I say that as someone that if you worry about just them knowing stories outside the context of the key of interpretation, you miss the point. Uh, and if you – look, I mean, even like when, when you say, oh, Tom's coming, I said, I already know what he's going to say. <laughs> Why? Because when Tom gets to talk to people he hasn't talked to before, he wants to let them know that you can say God is love and not have to qualify it. Mm. And there's no way your kids don't know that. So when they pick up the Bible, just like I hope mine do if I don't suck, they will read it and go, if I read it well, or as Aquinas say, literally, uh, as God intended, then the crescendo of that text is, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends, or God is love. And so my advice on biblical literacy is say a few things repetitively so that they know they've done it well when they find out that it's, it coheres with this. And my family called them the Fuller Family Truths. It used to be called the Fuller Boy Rules because my family has not had a female born into it for 86 years until Cora was born. And my grandpa's the youngest of 13, if that numbers, how successful. Yeah, like we literally shoot the patriarchy every time we come. So, and, and every one of those boys... Turned out to have been elect. Okay. Yeah, conveniently. Awesome. <laughs> and so the the so we switched the language. But uh, as you get older, then uh, oh with Elgin, we told him the first Fuller family rule, and they're fully family true. And then it kind of grew. And the first one is the most true thing about you is you're God's beloved, right? And so when you pick up a sacred text. And then where you are in that moment is the God of love meeting you. Sometimes it's affirming and it's blessing. Sometimes it's calling you out because you're being selfish and inwardly turned. Sometimes it's asking you to expand your horizon. But the most true thing is you're God's beloved. Um, and I think that, and there's a bunch of others, right? But part of, sometimes as Protestants, we think biblically, biblical literacy is the key. When the overwhelming majority of church history and people baptized in the body of Christ are illiterate, right? So there is a way to be deeply Christian and faithful and live a beautiful life and never touch a Bible. The Bible is a way of rehearsing the testimony of the people of Israel and the early church of the living God whom we trust. But what are we trusting? We're trusting that the one who met us in Christ is the source of all things. So how do you pass that on? And sometimes that means learning to read against when it goes to a text. But if we win as parents, they will actually read against us. We want to be the grandparent where they let us know we didn't hand off something as beautiful as we could. And if we are humble, then we'll say, thank you. I succeeded 30 years ago when I told you, you know, like that's what we want. And so I feel like there's this, uh, if you're a process person, misplaced concreteness about biblical literacy or these ideas or getting it into them. The moment you wake up in an open and relational universe that Tom has dedicated his life to, then if you internalize it every moment, whether you're reading a text, talking to a friend or meeting an enemy, is is that the God of love meets you. And you get to respond in whatever way you can wager your faith. What is the best way of passing that on? It happens when you read text. It happens when you call them and say, I'm with my five best friends that we, I stayed sane in lockdown with. Or like, you remember Tony when you met him? And Elgin remembers one time when he showed. And they, like, and I retell those stories. Why are you there? And you just tell those stories. Like, what is it that animates you? What is it you're handing on? That is the best way of learning to read the text. 
And that's how they all showed up, by people reading them out loud and retelling them. And our Jewish, our Jewish friends remind us, a well-gifted text is one you argue about forever and never figure out. So don't sweat the small stuff. And occasionally, maybe, after you're 24, you should just get high and read it again. And then you'll realize that you might be a little too, a little too precious with it. My God. Wow. I love okay. you, Tripp. Thank you, Tripp. If you, if you don't know Tripp's work and you like listening to him talk, I got really good news for you. <laughs> Because he's been podcasting for 15 years now at Homebrewed Christianity and just find a topic that interests you. And you can have more of that on demand in your pocket at any time. Sarah, you were going to say something? No? I also have a podcast. No, I'm just kidding. That's what I was going to say. Okay. We're, we're wrapping up. Let's thank our panelists. You guys can... Thank you so much. And in fact, everybody... All the panelists today, everybody.